This is Henry Lopez, and I welcome you to this special series of episodes on the topic of human resources. David Begin recently had an opportunity to speak with Claudia St. John. Claudia is the president of Affinity HR Group and an author and HR professional with more than 20 years experience in human resources. David chats with Claudia about a broad range of topics related to managing human resources in our car wash businesses. From the challenges of recruiting good employees to the impact of federal regulations, Claudia shares valuable and practical information to help us become better operators. This is part two of this series with Claudia St. John on human resources. If you missed part one, you can find it at thehowofcarwashing.com. This episode is sponsored by the Car Wash Operating System, the task and maintenance management solution for your car wash. Now, here is David Begin and Claudia St. John. Welcome to the How of Car Washing, the podcast that helps the car wash owner, operator, and manager address the challenges and opportunities associated with building and running automated car washes in today's fast-paced environment. And now, here are your hosts, David Begin and Henry Lopez. We're seeing a lot. I've been getting a lot more things passing through my desk from the state mm-hmm. and from the federal government when it comes to regulations. And I'm looking at the emails you're sending. And if you have not subscribed to the ICA emails, you're sending out a terrific email on Mondays. Is that right? Mondays. HR Mondays? Yep. HR okay. Minutes. The Monday Minutes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. The Monday Minutes. And I'm seeing a lot of great stuff come across there and okay. it's scaring me to death. <laughs> I'm sorry. All these things that are coming. No, no, it's good. It's good. But, you know, we're seeing a lot of megatrends, mm-hmm. both at the state and the federal level. Can you describe what you're seeing and some of the shifts that are being made? Sure, sure. Well, I, I would say we have two opposing things going on. The feder- On the federal level, we see very little new things coming out. What we're seeing, you know, the Obama administration, especially in the last couple of years of the Obama administration, really put in place a lot of regulations, Um, you know, minimum wage uh, um, evaluations, um, changing the independent contractor statuses, just a lot, a lot of, of new stuff. And that's all gone. Um, so, so really within the first few weeks, the, um, Trump administration has really rolled back most of what was done, at least in the last three to four years of the Obama administration. Um, we also see that the, the, the workforce, the department of labor, um, itself and its enforcement arm, the EEOC, um, have really lightened up as well. There's not as much funding for those. So it's really much, much more of a business-friendly environment coming out from the federal level. Um, we also see that the courts have been, this, the Roberts Supreme Court, within just within the past you know month, really, have rolled back a lot of previous um, uh pro-employee, um, uh, pro-labor um, decisions. So a lot of, for example, like uh, mandatory arbitration has, has has been upheld in in by the Supreme Court. Um, the uh, wage checkoff for unions was um, was struck down by the Supreme Court. So a much more favorable, uh, business-friendly Supreme Court and federal government. That is absolutely opposite what's happening on the states. So, you know, if we think about our federal government, you know, yes, we have 
basically a crippled Congress right now, but we had one before. Um, Basically, Congress hasn't done much within the last almost 12 years. So certainly the eight years of the Obama administration, very little got got passed after health care reform. So what's happened instead is that on the state and local level, they've all been rolling out the things that they, as you know, the workplace protections and safeties and changes that they would have liked to have seen on a federal level, but haven't. So that's created a lot of conflicts for our our, our clients, you know, our, our car washes that have multi-state locations, or they live in, say, a, a tri-state area, you know, down in a, you know, a New York, New Jersey, Connecticut type of location. Um, and so, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of trends coming out, like, for example, mandatory paid sick leave, um, parental leave, p- predictable scheduling, um, where you have to provide up to two weeks notice of a schedule. And if you change it within, you know, a week of that actual schedule, there's an incentive pay that goes along with it. We also see a lot of pay equity legislation coming up on the state and local level. And that's um, basically saying that you can't ask about previous salary because if you have women typically have a lower salary history than a man does. And so by asking that salary history and then continuing to increase pay based on the prior salary history, we don't crack that that pay inequity. And so that's been passed on a state and local level. You know, marijuana laws, legalization of recreational or, me- or medical marijuana has, has been a big issue for folks to, 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 um, to, to deal with increases in minimum wage. So many states are now putting in place because we have like some locales like New York City has a higher minimum wage than the state does. And we see a lot of states, particularly in the South, now passing laws that say that, that, this, that locales cannot, cannot pass their own um, labor laws. Um, that that has to happen on the state level because it's getting so complicated. Um, there's one other one that that most folks probably have already encountered. It's called ban the box. And it just means that you can't ask on your employment application about criminal history, you know, misdemeanor or felony. Felony, Felonies. thank you. I know it began with an F, but, but um, it doesn't mean that you can't ask it, but you have to ask it later in the process. So all of these things are happening in a variety of different ways. Like one, one the scheduled pay leave or the, or the paid family sick leave can look completely different than the next one, the next state over. So it really has created a lot of challenges for our, our companies that straddle, you know, straddle a border or have, you know, have locations in more than one board, more than one location. Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. I guess I need to look at my job <laughs> application now that you just talked about man the box, but uh, so what, so you've got state, federal, yes. even local regulations. So New York city, for example, yep. is a great example. You know, San yep. Francisco is doing it. Yep. Seattle's doing it. So what law, if there's conflict in law, which one typically gets, which one uh, So, prevails? So always and forever, federal law is the, is the lowest common denominator. So if federal law minimum wage is $7.45, then no state can have a minimum wage or no locale can have a minimum wage lower than that. So, so the bottom is the right. federal and then the state can, the state either matches the federal or doesn't something above and beyond the federal. And then again, that sets the stage. You can't have a locale that, that is less than what the state law is. 
but then you can have a locale again that's more than the state law. So you can have a federal minimum wage that's 104 with the seven dollars and forty five cents, and then you can have a state minimum wage that's ten dollars, and then you can have a, a you know a, a municipality or a county or a city minimum wage that's fifteen, but you couldn't have it the other way around. Yeah, right. But are are are, are there regulations that sort of fall along the same line? So if if New York has a has a par, uh, mm-hmm. parental leave policy that con that is more restrictive than the state, which is more restrictive than the federal government. Do I, I if I'm going to do business in New York City, I've got to follow that particular law. Yes, and but it wouldn't be more restrictive than the state. It would be more generous than the state. The most restrictive would be the federal. Got it. That okay. sets the minimum. You can't go. You can't do anything less than what the federal does. Right. And the federal has no paid no paid family leave. Okay. So then you would go to the state. And if the state doesn't have anything on a paid family leave, then then the locale will do it. But but usually usually the, well actually always the laws that you see within a city or a county or a municipality are always more generous to the employee. Always always a greater greater degree of either protection or benefit than what sure. exists at the state or federal level. And that's interesting because you were looking at it from the standpoint of the employee and I was looking at it from the standpoint of the of the employer when I of said more restrictive. <laughs> you were saying, no, 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 it's more generous. So I yeah, we're 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 speaking the same language. We're speaking the same thing. Interesting. interesting. <laughs> yes. Good. So it's, you know, it's some of the trends that are taking place and changes that are taking place in the laws. And uh, we're, you know, we're starting to see things, uh, more regulation being tilted more toward the employee, uh, I think, at the state level than probably the federal level. It's interesting that you said the federal level has really backed off a lot of uh, mm-hmm. um, employee uh, benefits. So they're, they're leaning more toward the, would you say, and I hate to do this because I think there's always stakeholders in a business. You've got your customers. You've got the owners and you've got the employees. So I think a good owner, which I try to do, is I try to balance the needs and desires of all three of my stakeholders uh, when, sure. you're, when you're running a business. So you want to you kind of have that balance between what the employer needs and what the, what the employee needs. Um, exactly. But we're, we're, we're starting to see some trends going in some, diff- some, some different directions. What are, oh, obviously, we're seeing a minimum wage trend that we've never seen before. So a number of states, including Colorado, which in the year 2020 goes to $12 per hour. And I, I wrote wow. down that when I opened this business, the minimum wage was $5.35 an hour. And that was back in 2006. Wow. So we're, we're seeing some increases. You know, the good news is we're doing well and, and we're able to, to accommodate those, those increases. But what, what, what do you think the effect of minimum wage increases? What, what's the effect on the workforce? I have to say it's been it's been really I I would say there are there are four things, three to four things right now that are really affecting the the workforce. One is the increase in minimum wage. You know, why would I take a job where I'm going to be hot and sticky in the summer and wet and work hard when I could go and, you know, work at Panera Bread for the same amount? You know, so so the the it, it makes it harder to compete for that talent because they can get that wage anywhere. Um, so, so it's how to, how to, how to make yourself attractive given the fact that, um, this increase is going, you know, going up all over the place, but the minimum wage is affecting the labor force. Um, the, I, I hate to say it, but the opioid epidemic has been affecting the, the, the labor force. Um, we have a lot of, uh, regions in the country where folks can't pass the drug test. Um, and, it, and it's, it's had, I have clients now who actually don't 
drug test because they say if they did, they would never have an employee work for them. I don't agree with that, but I certainly sympathize with it. Immigration changes and policies have also um, have also changed a lot of um, some of the decisions on state level to go to mandatory E-Verify has reduced the workforce. Um, So so overall, Getting that qualified, um, that and the fact that a lot of workers now realize that they need more education in order to ensure that they're going to be able to maintain a, you know, a, a middle class existence in this day and age. So they go to school and then they end up with all of this debt and they can't take the kind of jobs that would help them sort of round out their overall their overall income and their overall quality of life. So there just are fewer, many, many fewer qualified, viable candidates to work at these levels in these types of positions than there used to be. I mean, that you, you probably had very little difficulty filling those jobs, you know, in 2010, whereas now, boy, you've got you've to really focus on employee engagement and keeping your employees because finding them in the first place is expensive. And I, I'll share that we, we have a full service recruiting arm. And um, just within the last six months of this year, our volume of work that we've been doing is is double what it was in in previous years, and we were recruiting for a pretty good sales position in Texas, um, and we put in Dallas. We put the job posting out there. We got four candidates. Period. Really, four people applied. So wow. so basically, it's we have to we we are doing all of our time headhunting. Um, so, you know, being creative with how you're attracting people and getting them in the door, because if you're just throwing up a, you know, a posting on Indeed or, or Craigslist or, or your local newspaper, it's not good enough. I mean, it's just not good enough. You really have to go out and find these people, even for your hourly, you know, car wash technicians, you got to go out and get them. Very much so. Very much so. Do you think, I want to ask you a question about the psychological aspect of minimum wage. First of all, you've, you've got a little bit of policy analyst in you. Mm-hmm. Um, so does increasing minimum wage increase, do, do you see the effect on inflation? My, my fear is we're increasing minimum wage, but the cost of living is increasing all around us. And the people that are seeing increases in their pay are not seeing the benefit in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, the question is how correlated are the price of goods and service based on the cost of labor, right? So right. if the cost of labor goes up, then obviously the price of goods and services has to go up as well. I mean, it's one is one is inextricably tied to the other. Um, I, what I don't know is is how tightly they are tied together. Um, but but I I do know that um, you know we've got car wash clients in California, and that I think that minimum wage is now around thirteen dollars an hour, going up to fifteen dollars an hour. And they're just really they and and these guys used to be pay more than the minimum wage. That was their motivator. They wanted to be better than a minimum wage job. They wanted to, to be able to provide a viable income to the folks that work there. And now they're just struggling to keep up with the minimum wage because they haven't increased their own costs correspondingly, their prices correspondingly. Right. So yeah, I, I think inevitably we're going to get into some some level of inflationary growth. And it's why you don't see the federal government moving on minimum wage. Um, all of these minimum wages have been done, and, and you don't see them much in the South as well. They tend to be more progressive, um, larger, you know, blue state type um, of, of increases because of that very concern. Because if you increase minimum wage, you're going to increase increase prices across the board. Sure. 
This is Henry Lopez, co-host of the How of Car Washing podcast with an exciting announcement. My co-host David Begin and I have designed a task management system for our car wash business. It helps us manage all of the operational tasks at our wash locations, like repair work orders, scheduled maintenance, and all of the checklists that we use to keep the wash running smoothly. We call it the Car Wash Operating System, and it helps us manage our operations so that we can drive maximum performance in our business. We are now offering the Car Wash Operating System to other wash owners. If you're looking for ways to improve your operations by reducing downtime and reducing maintenance costs, then we invite you to learn more about our affordable solution at carwashos.com. The Car Wash Operating System is a task management software solution designed to help you manage your operational tasks so that you can drive maximum performance at your wash business. Again, to find out more about the Car Wash Operating System, please visit carwashos.com. And the other psychological component I think that's out there is even though my my workers, even if I just paid minimum wage, they're in 2020, they're making 12 bucks an hour. And, mm-hmm. you know, five years ago, I didn't pay anybody 12 bucks an hour. I, not, not really, but, but, you know, it was kind of a special person would make $12 an hour. Now everybody's going to be making a minimum of $12 yeah. an hour. There's a psychological component to, I'm not making $12 an hour. I'm making minimum wage. Right. And sure. What, what do you think about that? Oh, I absolutely agree. And, and, and there's also pressure on the employer to combat that psychological pressure by keeping them commensurately above the minimum wage. So that's, that's an even higher wage pressure and wage growth. Um, and and it, there absolutely is a psychological component to it. And, and, and I'll equate it to another regulation that Obama actually attempted to put in, which uh, the Trump administration has, has, has let die. You know, they basically, right now, in order to be considered an, an exempt employee, which means paid a salary and you don't get overtime, you have to earn at least $455 a week or, or $23,000 a year. Um, That was supposed to go up to $47,000 a year or $966 a week. So all of these people who were exempt, right, salaried position, professional positions, all of a sudden found themselves being reclassified as hourly because they didn't have their pay wasn't high enough. And the psychological impact on that on employees was tremendous. We worked right. with a number of companies that 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 actually tried to get ahead of the regulation because um, it didn't get pulled until like the very, very, very last minute. And and they all, I think, without exception, they all rolled it back and then made those folks exempt again because the psychological impact of it was significant. You know, really, I, I work hard. I earned this. And all of a sudden now some guy walking in the door at the same time gets the same amount that I do. And I'm at minimum wage. Like I, I, I've never worked, I've never been at minimum wage before. And now I am. So yeah, there's a significant, there's a, and it requires a lot of communication, you know, right. A lot of it. Right. And that, that's one thing I always, you know, it worries me in the back of my mind. And I'm certainly, I think we're in a position we can increase wages and we'll do so as things goes along. And we're going to pay more than minimum wage, but, you know, everybody's always thinking I'm a dollar for minimum wage. I'm $2 for minimum wage. I'm $5 for minimum wage. And as that number comes up, it just puts an increasing amount of pressure 
on the whole system, sure. uh, including the psyche of the employees, sure. you know, to feel good and good about what they're getting paid. So have you seen your prices at your car wash increase, you know, correspondingly to the, your hourly wage? We have, uh, you know, we've done a couple price increases probably in the last, we did one maybe five years ago. We did one in the last two years and we'll probably do one more in 2020 when it gets to 12, it'll be a convenient time for us to mm-hmm. let people know. But our, our customers sometimes don't make the correlation that, that, uh, what they voted for. So it was something they okay. voted for in the state mm-hmm. and, and Colorado for a long time had the ability, anybody could put anything on a ballot that they wanted to, and it was very easy to do. That got fixed last year, so it's going to be incredibly. It's going to be more difficult to uh, to put initiatives on the ballot. But one of the initiatives in two thousand eight. Well, there's two of them. One of them was marijuana, mm-hmm. and the other was was ta- let's take our minimum wage to, uh, I say two thousand eight, two thousand twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, let's let's vote in uh, recreational marijuana, and let's take our minimum wage to twelve dollars an hour. And both of those passed. Yeah. And so now people don't aren't seeing, I, I, you know, hopefully our customers and even in fast food, we're seeing prices go up in, in the fast food industry. So when you go out to eat, it's getting more expensive. But I think all of these services that we rely on are getting more and more expensive. I hope our customers understand that, you know, there is a correlation between what we have to pay in labor and what we have to charge you uh, at the at the auto station. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. So that medical marijuana. Goes back to, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk that about pot. Yeah. Yippee. Yay. But uh, so it's, you know, it's been such a boon for the state. And uh, I think you're going to see, you know, you're seeing more and more states starting to adopt recreational marijuana. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say all the 20 year olds with back pain are starting to go away now. I know they're all, all disappearing, but um <laughs> But that was that was a joke. But, uh, <laughs> I got it. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's difficult for me as an employer because it, you know. So if I wanted to drug test somebody, I can test them and say, okay, you you're under the influence of alcohol, you're under the influence of drugs, and therefore, when this happened, you know, we're we're correlating to mm-hmm. this with with the levels of THC and the way they're making. You know, marijuana is becoming much more of a complicated product out there, and the levels of THC that are in these products are. M- well, what people are telling me are much higher than they ever were before. When in the 60s and 70s, the level of THC wasn't nearly as high as some of the stuff that they're 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 uh, growing mm-hmm. nowadays. And so, if something happens, I have an accident, and I have to drug test an employee. They could have THC in their system. Um, I don't know if they're under the influence or not because it stays in their system for a long period of time. And I don't know. If the state law, which decriminalizes it, doesn't really legalize it, but only decriminalizes it, you know, allows that versus the federal law, which says it's not right. allowed. And so it's, it's put me in a very difficult position as an employer. So what uh, do you have any suggestions for our listeners? Yeah. And I, and I think you just hit on the hardest part altogether, which is um, the the boy, it's it's changing fast. Right. And and it's changing um, faster than the technological advances for detecting active, active, you know, being actively under the influence of THC. Um, so, so th- that's the hardest. That's the hardest piece. And all I can say is, every employer that has to deal with is grappling with it as well. Um, so, but there's also there's the there's there's well, let me back up for a second. Medical and medicinal and recreational marijuana are two different real approaches. They, they, and they require a different 
um, a different analysis. If you have somebody who has a medical marijuana card or who's licensed to provide that information, they should be treated just like any other person who has been prescribed with a, a prescription for, say, an opioid or some sort of muscle relaxant or, you know, some other medication that for medicinal reasons you would need. And in that conversation, you need to ensure that that having that card, using that substance would not impair them, that there's no reason why they would not be able to do the functioning of the job. There's no law that I know of. I have not seen any law that requires an employer tolerate that the employee is on-site working under the influence. Okay. So if you suspect that your employee is under the influence, again, I would always, you know, call us or call an attorney before you take an adverse employment action. Um, because if it is for medicinal reasons, you know, they, they do have some protections, but there's really nothing that says you're allowed to be high at work. Um, and, and that's obviously for just like you're, you're not allowed to be drunk at work. Um, we really re- encourage when, you, when you're in a situation where it's a medicinal, uh, you know, um, medical marijuana, you treat it like you would other um, narcotic drugs that are provided as a result of a medical ailment. So you treat it like a prescription. Again, you don't need to allow them to be high on work, but that you should be notified that they're using it. You should be notified that the context in which they're using it, if they use it appropriately and not at work, it won't impair them when they are at work. Um, so, so ensuring that you're creating the right work environment for them based on their medicinal use of this substance, just like they would under any other medication. Now, if we, if we are in a recreational situation, it's just like drinking. Drinking is legal. People are allowed to drink, but you can't show up at work drunk. And if you suspect that they're drunk, then, then you have the right to send them home until they're not drunk. Now, you know, again, you get breathalyzers that makes life easy. And there are, there are tests that are coming out now for more, more immediate use of marijuana. Um, but, but it, it, it still does create that, that real challenge because there's no real way to test. Are you high at this moment in time? Right. Um, and, and that's, that's, you know, one of the challenges as well. And, you know, we also have clients who service, you know, there's, they're, they're subcontractors. They service the, the, you know, vehicles for their county, state, or municipal, you know, buildings. Because of those contracts, they have to maintain a zero drug free workplace in a state where it's legal. So they really have, they really get between a rock and a hard place because how do they, how do they adhere to the terms of the contract that they've signed and also are compliant with the law that allows recreational marijuana? So right. it gets, it gets really complicated very quickly. Um, and every state has a, you know, has a different set of rules. I'll tell you one final thing. And, and, and it's, it's one of those mega trends that we've been talking about. Um, so pre-employment drug screening. There was a case out of Massachusetts, which now has um, has recreational marijuana as well, and they tested a woman, and she came back positive for um, marijuana use, and they uh, didn't hire her, and she had it for medical reasons, not for recreational reasons, and she sued and won, saying that it was an invasion of her privacy to have to disclose what medication she was on as a pre-employment test. 
So, so that's going to be the next thing that comes up. If you're in a state that has, that has recreational marijuana or even medical marijuana, think long and hard about whether or not you include that drug on that drug panel, you know, for pre-employment testing. Okay. Good point. And I was going to ask you, is it important, is it required by the employee to disclose to their employer whether or not they were on medical marijuana? No. And the answer is no. No, no not really. I mean, just as they would not be required to disclose to you if they were taking Percocet for, you know, a, a sciatic nerve problem. Okay. And and that's really what the that's what that's what the crux of that case was about. It was an invasion of her privacy, in order to have to disclose what medical ailment that she had or what medication she was taking for a medical ailment. We don't require that of anybody taking any other medications for hire. But if it's a condition of the job for safety purposes, still doesn't apply. Still doesn't apply because it presumes that she's not high at work. Right. Okay. So it's just like I might have, I might be given muscle relaxants because I really threw my back out. Well, I'm not going to take them when I'm at work, at work, but you can be sure as soon as I get home, I will. And it's that, that's why I always say equate medical marijuana to, to legalize, legally prescribed opioids. You're you're not allowed to be high at work. It's never okay to be high at work on anything. Um, But it's fine to do it when you get home and it's prescribed. And it's legal. So, so that's okay. really the distinction. The difference between the opioid case and the marijuana case is we just don't have a good way to tell, are you high? Sure. Okay. All right. Well, good information. <laughs> I don't, you know, it's not, uh, it, I don't know if it's, it's tough. It, this is a really tough subject because you want to, you want to keep your environment safe. You want to create a good environment for your employees. And there's a lot of conflict and hopefully the state and federal government will get this worked out over time. Absolutely. And I, I just, the, the bottom line on is, is if you suspect somebody's high at work, then you, they, they don't have any legal protections. Okay. Just like if they were drunk at work, they don't have any legal protections. Okay. Well, it's good to know. Good. Yeah. Well, let's move on to a different subject here about small business owners. What, you know, you've moved into that medium and small business owners and you probably cringe a lot of times when you talk to small business owners and the the lack of preparation when it comes to this human resource. What are some of the most common things you see small business owners not doing and uh, that obviously you can help them with, but what are, what are some things that just make you, you know, stay awake at night worrying about your clients? Oh, that's so funny. Um, Well, you know, all I have to do is think back on what, what, what has been on the other end of the phone when I've picked it up, like Claudia, I need your help. Um, I think the, the number one mistake that I see for small to mid-sized clients is that they don't have a valid and updated employee handbook. Um, and that really is an important thing because violations of employment law, um, you're only as safe as your last bad hire. You know, you hire one dud and they don't like you and then they'll sue you for goodness knows what. And if you don't have a handbook that says, these are our policies, this is how we conduct ourselves, we adhere to these laws, um, and, and it, it's not just your policy, it also has to be your practice. You can't have a, a policy that says that we don't discriminate, and then you turn around and discriminate. You know, you, you, right. you have to be consistent. But being able to demonstrate to the employee, to the manager who's managing that employee, and to the court of law, we, we know this is the law, we follow the law, we're prescribing it clearly here is a really important thing. And, and we see this issue all the time. I had a guy call me just last week 
he called me and he said, Claudia, I, I have this issue. I have, an, I have a pregnant employee. I've never had one before. And now I've got to put her out on family medical leave. What do I do? And I said, family medical leave? You don't have 50 employees. How many do you have? And he said, seven. And I said, well, then why are you, why are you mentioning family medical leave? He said, well, it's in my handbook. And I said, why is it in your handbook? And he said, oh, well, he borrowed his wife's handbook. And I said, well, where does she work? <laughs> She's a multi, she works for a multi-state law, law firm, right? Oh, so they're in goodness. seven states. They have like 600 attorneys. And he figured, well, they're attorneys. It must, it must be right. And so having that handbook is really important, but also making sure that you have the right handbook because there are a lot of laws that kick in when you have more and more and more employees. And you don't want to have to try and adhere to those when you're small. So it's oftentimes right. doing that. The, the biggest issue that I see is that people have a challenge. You know, everybody has a loo. And Lou, Lou quit, you know, four years ago, but he's still there and you don't fire him because Lou is a cousin of your grandfather's or, you know, whatever it is, he's sort of a protected person. And then finally, when you finally are done with him, you call me and you're like, I got to fire Lou. And the problem is oftentimes the critical conversations that you've had with Lou, either you haven't had them or you had them and you didn't document them. And then instead, right. Lou can say, well, you know, I'm 63 years old and disabled. That's why you're firing me. And really, right. um, which is which is another interesting point. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of small businesses think that it's employment at will, that they can hire and fire at will. And that is the law of the land. But you, the only exception to that is you cannot fire somebody for a um, for a an illegal or discriminatory reason. And so it becomes incumbent on the employer to prove that the reason why they're firing that person is not because he's disabled and old. It's because he's a terrible employee and he doesn't right. perform the duties of his job. So I think the number one thing that employers, the mid, you know, the small to mid-sized employers do, don't do is they don't document the conversations. Either they don't have them or they don't document them. And they right. put themselves at great risk when they do that. The other thing that they do a lot is they misclassify their employees. You know, they, they give their receptionist, they don't pay their receptionist um, a sa an hourly, an hour, they put, they pay her on a salaried basis. So she hasn't been getting overtime and she finally quits and sues. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got a big problem on your hands. Um, and, and the thing about employment law and employment law violations is that they are entirely irrespective of the size of the business. So whereas a large employer can handle it, you know, it can decimate a small employer. Sure. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Great point. Thanks for listening to this episode. Part three will be released soon. And if you missed part one, you can find it at thehowofcarwashing.com. And thanks to our show sponsor, the Car Wash Operating System. Thank you for listening to The How of Car Washing. For more information, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofcarwashing.com and leave us a comment if you have a topic you would like discussed. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to having you next time on The How of Car Washing.